always startles me. We're going. <laughs> That's you singing, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot. Here we go. Brothers, sisters, siblings, welcome to Penn Sunday School starring Penn Gillette. My name is Michael Trudeau, Penn, Matt, Ready, Rich, and I am broadcasting from our separate homes in Las Vegas. Trudeau didn't do an intro. I think he froze. I think he is doing an intro, but we can't hear it. Oh, cool. Man. Like Helen Keller falling in the forest. <laughs> you want to jump in there, Matt? Uh, yeah, I can do it. You want me to do the intro for this one and then they come back? That's very surprising. I'm not there? Not to be a Matt intro. But you're always very special. <laughs> Wait, is Godot back now? What are we doing? Am I in? Brothers, sisters, siblings, welcome to Penn Sunday School starring Penn Gillette. My name is Michael Rideau, Ken, Matt, Freddie Rich, and I are broadcasting from our separate homes in Las Vegas. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Sarah Lowe and Chelsea Phillips-Reed about their podcast, The Side Hustle. I was going to explain what that means, but I think everybody knows. Here is Preaching Love, Mr. Ben Gillette. Yeah, this is, a, uh, this is a bank show. So when you're hearing this, it could be a happy day for me. Or it could be a sad day for me. I could be I could be in the hospital, or I could be in in bliss. We don't know, but there's some reason you could be in the hospital on morphine, or you could be in the hospital not on morphine. It could be a sad day. It could be a happy day. I have been in the hospital on morphine, and I got to tell you, I enjoyed it. <laughs> I'm this big, big anti-drug person, but that's only when they're not in me. <laughs> When they're in me, I am so pro-drug, it's amazing. <laughs> you know, my dad never had a, um, uh, any alcohol or drug in his life, you know. And he went in for surgery, and uh, they gave him some drug, and he said the, the nurse turned into an angel. And he said, oh, this is stuff I shouldn't be doing. <laughs> and I know, what he, I know what he felt. And a friend of mine who's rather anti-drug, uh, on his uh, racing his bike, broke his collarbone. And he went in and they gave him, after he'd been laying there for a long time, they gave him some like super fentanyl. And he said he felt that the tip of his little finger felt better than his whole body had felt ever in his life. <laughs> oh, man. He said, boy, drug addicts do not do this because it feels bad. <laughs> So I am somewhere indisposed, and we are very, very lucky because we have someone else's podcast that we are on, so we can just bend over and let them drive. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Just relax. Okay. Just, yeah. Just imagine you're on the morphine. Yeah. Okay. I'm on the morphine. <laughs> the tip of your finger is about to feel so good. <laughs> we, we, is that just the tip of your finger? We have, um, we have Sarah and we have Chelsea joining us. Yeah. Hello, hello. Hello, thanks for having us. This is exciting. And you, uh, you talk to people in show business about jobs they've had within show business, but not their favorite show business, or also outside of show business, or you're so hungry for content, you no longer give a fuck and they can talk about bears. <laughs> yeah, we're just interviewing strangers, we just, animals. Yeah. yeah, we could actually do a whole podcast on the morphine if, uh, <laughs> if we needed. 
Um, yeah, we lo- we decided uh, as performers in the biz that we also have uh, done some pretty crazy jobs outside or on the way up, and we know that we are not alone. Yeah. So we decided to. We've done weird stuff for money. That's what we keep yeah. saying. <laughs> And because we, Sarah and I both have worked since we were little kids. And we were saying that even when you like have reached some kind of like marker of like success of like, oh, I'm in a show on the strip in Vegas or I'm in a Broadway show. If someone offers you $500 to like wear a costume at a child's birthday party, you're like, eh, <laughs> okay. Uh, Henny Youngman, do you know Henny Youngman? You're all too young, I suppose. But Henny Youngman was a, um, yeah, I'm actually too young. Henny Youngman was a comic in the 40s and 50s, and he was uh, king of one-liners. All his jokes were one-liners. He held the violin, never played it, did one-liners. And you might know the joke he's more famous, most famous for, which was, take my wife, please. That was his joke. And um, uh, for, uh, you know, instead of, for example, that. And he had a lot of jokes. And he was... um, he would have been like uh, when I was in my teens, he would have been in his 70s, you know, so I barely knew about him, but he would have been on all the roasts and stuff. There's Henny Youngman. And uh, see, take my wife, please. And yeah. um, Henny Youngman, uh, we shared an agent with him. At the end of Henny's career and the beginning of our career, we had the same agent, and the agent would tell us Henny's stories. And whenever Henny was in a hotel, you know, doing his gig that night, which he was, you know, he's playing, he would have played all the showrooms in Vegas. He was that biggest star. Uh, but whatever hotel he was at, he would go to the lobby and check out what functions were happening in the hotel, like a wedding or a bar mitzvah or a christening or anything. And he would jot down the time and then he would show up there. And he would walk into someone in charge and say, I'm Henny Youngman. Give me 50 bucks. I'll do 10 minutes. <laughs> I love it. And the agents hated him for it because they never got a piece of it. Right. He would just look around the room and decide how much money he thought he could get <laughs> and just give a price and take it in cash and walk away. And see, he's the exact person we'd have on the podcast because you know he's got great stories about these events. He even had stories. He famously had stories of doing funerals. He would do eulogies for like 50 bucks. You'd have Henny Youngman tell stories. And there's a very famous story of Henny Youngman doing a eulogy in front of an open casket turning around and going, wait a minute, I know this guy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Henny Youngman was pure, pure showbiz. And if you, um, if you do a search for him and and check, check him out, it's just joke, 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 joke. There's no character. There's no connecting. There's no, Speaking of airplanes, boom, 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 50 bucks, goodbye. goodbye. I also, I have to say that the, the idea that he brought his violin with him and never played it is also just up there for me. That's one of the greatest things he's like. He's well, that's, you know, a lot of guys did that. Um, 
You know, Maury Amsterdam, yeah. who was on the Dick Van Dyke show, uh, uh, Maury Amsterdam came out with a cello. <laughs> Sat down with a cello and never got to it. Jack Benny always had a violin. Larry Fine of the Three Stooges did a violin act. When he joined the Three Stooges, in his contract, it said he wasn't allowed to play the violin. <laughs> and there was a guy who, um, Johnny Thompson, who uh, our mentor told us about, that I thought had the greatest opening line ever. He had a marimba on stage, and the curtain would open. He had the marimba in front of him, and he'd say, hey, you hate me already. <laughs> 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 so yeah putting on a funny suit you know emo emo phillips uh even today used to uh bring out a trombone yeah and never play it he would juggle it <laughs> this is what we've been doing wrong we've had no instruments with us and all the well, time i think the thing is that um before lenny bruce uh the the you know comics when Lenny Bruce invented, not by himself, but invented modern stand-up comedy, um, the idea of walking on stage and saying, my wife served me divorce papers today, which is one of the things Lenny Bruce did, which was unheard of. Uh, comics before that told jokes, which we don't even think about anymore. I mean, now it's Jackie the Joke Man and Gilbert Gottfried. That's the only ones who tell jokes, you know? Right. They do, they do jokes that are woven into wry commentary or, you know, of shared observations. But in the day of like Albert Brooks's father, Parker Carcass, you'd come out and do a, you'd do a character. He did a Greek character. You know, he was, he was Jewish, but he did a Greek character called Parker Carcass. And he would come out and you'd do a dialect or Chico Marx doing his Italian dialect, or you carried an instrument. The idea of coming out on stage as a regular person to tell jokes just didn't happen. You know, the walking out in jeans, jeans and a button-up shirt and saying, you know, hey, what's going on? How about the band? That, that's a brand new thing. I wonder I mean, if like oh, comedians to like back in the day, if they could see it now, would either be like, wait, I could do that? Or would they be like, this is hack bullshit where's the don't they have any jokes why are where's they where's the jokes yeah where are the jokes bring out the <laughs> instruments they don't play exactly <laughs> i remember uh we were doing the uh the aristocrats uh one of the one of the old time comics uh was in the middle of doing this whole thing uh and uh a uh, pat cooper it was pat cooper right in the middle of this incredible genius rant he just said would someone tell me what janine garofalo does so i can die <laughs> and then went on <laughs> <laughs> and it just floored us because you knew exactly what he meant where are the fucking jokes what's she doing what's her act <laughs> and i often think that when i see a comic who's you know Carrying on about stuff, I often think, would someone tell me what Janine Garofalo does so I can die? I remember uh, this, the stand-up stages in Edinburgh, Scotland. That's one of the harshest heckles you get, which is someone will yell, 
after they talk for like five minutes and it's not going well, someone just goes, tell us a joke. <laughs> and the guy's like, already been doing stand-up for five minutes. It's the harshest. <laughs> it's the harshest heckle there is. I was doing my 20-minute um, intro to 30 seconds of juggling, <laughs> <laughs> which is my, uh, my trademark. And someone yelled out, do the trick. <laughs> so constantly, if I looked in the wings even for a second, the crew was going, do the trick. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think that you should uh, do some research and maybe, I mean, I really realize this is very forward of me, maybe dedicate your podcast to Annie Young. <laughs> Listen, we're open to suggestions. We could at least uh, we could at least title an episode. You know? <laughs> and uh, Chelsea, I don't know you well. No, I think I've seen you in Fifty Shades. Yeah, a long time. I did not see you in Magic Mike. Not because I'm insecure about my sexuality, but I just don't like to go to shows. Um, <laughs> this may be pushing our relationship. Okay, but I'm thinking bassoon. Mm. <laughs> I was definitely going to go with a wind instrument. You're oh, correct. well, double reed. I'm thinking yeah. double reed. Yeah. I was arguing with the oboe and bassoon. Yeah, but I think if you walked out with a bassoon around your neck, told some jokes but never played the bassoon, people would be happy and thankful. Yeah. <laughs> and I revealed that I've been wetting my reeds this whole time, and I spit them out. And you're soaking your reeds. Yeah. <laughs> I've had six in my mouth the whole time. Double reeds are difficult, but once you get them, you gut them. Okay. Good. Well, and thank we you. Know. I mean, now I can die. Well, I still don't know what Janine Garofalo does, so I can't. I'm going to live forever. Vampire. The bassoon, if you do research, okay. bassoon is considered by many to be, if you want to get into show business, have benefits, be successful, but also be very secure with the least amount of work, bassoon is your ticket. Because bassoon, yeah. you're mostly playing quarter notes. Perfect. Once you get your embouchure in place, you can play it. It's pretty easy to sight read. It's pretty easy to play in tune. It is desired by orchestras who need it. And your orchestra, at least pre-pandemic, orchestras won't exist anymore, but we're talking about the past. <laughs> orchestras would pay about 100 grand with benefits. And the only way you're fucked is if your orchestra decides to play the Rite of Spring, in which case in that opening thing, you have to play an octave above the normal register. Mm, see, you where me until then. Debussy, <laughs> Debussy went to see the Rite of Spring, said to the person next to him, what instrument is that? The guy said, I think it's a bassoon. He said, if that's a bassoon, I'll eat my hat. And it was, and he didn't. <laughs> this is where the side hustle becomes the primary hustle right here. <laughs> but you know that that is going to be your biggest bassoon challenge yeah and I mean, so you can work on that every morning for like a half hour and then the one day they call it you go i got it i got that i wonder if like out school has the the uh, a bassoon lesson you know i don't know if you guys have heard of out school but out school is a a big thing now for kids to sign up and learn stuff on. So now I could just tell my kids, forget everything we've said before. It's bassoon lessons from today forward. 
And you know, uh, speaking of side hustles, um, Nicholson Baker, mm-hmm. my favorite living author, was a bassoon player. Really? And professional, yes. And he walked away from all that money to write books? <laughs> he probably did it while he was sitting on the orchestra stand. <laughs> bassoon, you have a lot of um, rest to count. As soon as this is over, I'm writing books. <laughs> Uh oh, you're doing the right of spring? I get an idea for a novel. Yeah. <laughs> I just ordered Rock Band Bassoon Pro Edition. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to um, work really, really hard, but always be employed in show business, pedal steel. Oh, yeah. Every bullshit country band needs a pedal steel. It's crazy hard to play. Yeah. And they'll all book. Is that right, Reddy? Is that your experience too? Yes. <laughs> it's not only crazy hard to play, nobody's is the same. Yeah. Mm. You hit, set it up. And there's a story that I was told by a security guard at Bally's, maybe accurate. <laughs> he was my security guard, and he was also Sinatra's, Dean Martin's, etc. Uh-huh. security guard. He told the story of Sinatra stopping in. Um, to do his sound check before Willie Nelson had cleared the whole stage. And there was a pedal steel set up on stage, and Sinatra walked by and said, what the fuck is that? (laughs) (laughs) The Sinatra Goes Country featuring pedal steel album, that didn't happen. Man, (laughs) pedal steel also just sounds like a great porn name. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> regardless of gender, regardless yeah. of gender. <laughs> and you've got to use your knees and your feet, and you've got to play in tune, and it's, it's a bitch to we're play. We're talking about the steel guitar. Oh, okay, sorry. already the, the wheels in my head were turning. I was like, <laughs> yeah. This is a great porn movie. I'm in. You spoke me. Thigh master. <laughs> Thigh master for pedal steel. Part three. All right. Man, I have so many goals for the new year now. So many instruments. I can't wait. As soon as this is done. Next year, it'll be, we're talking with bassoon and pedal steelist, Chelsea Phillips Reed. (laughs) I can't wait. I, you know, orchestra gigs uh, before there weren't any were actually fairly cushy, I believe. Yeah. Mm. If you weren't, you know, concert master, I think costs, you don't want to get to be concert master. I always said that about moving to the Caribbean. If you can bring a whole drum kit with you, you'll work forever. Because everybody, <laughs> everybody moves to an island with a guitar trying to play reggae. There's like <laughs> one drummer for every band. Because no one brings an entire drum kit to the Caribbean. So if you want to live in Hawaii or the Caribbean, that's what you want to do. You want to bring the drum kit and play the drums. Double bass drums. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can do that Quaalude Thunder. <laughs> Blowing the doors after every all these fifty seat shacks everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. So I've uh, I've I've covered uh, Henny Youngman <laughs> and Nicholson Baker's side hustles. This has really been more of a TED talk on like what instruments to learn if you want to be profitable. This is. I like it. I'll tell you something. Yeah. Your guitar, throw it away. Oh, okay. I have a ukulele. What about that? Set it on fire? 
Ukulele, you were okay a couple of years ago. Now there's actually competition on ukulele. Oh. Yeah. Every 70-year-old juggler plays ukulele. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, well, my people. Yeah. And Chelsea and I have had like, you know, we get together, we do the side hustle, but we also talk about the other thousands of ideas that we have. And one of them is like us being, we were, <laughs> if we were going to do a live show. Yeah. So we, we are in a band called the Ukuladies. <laughs> well, Ukuladies is a good yeah. name. We're both, we both don't play ukulele well at all. Like I know a few chords. So what are you, what are you talking about? You're what? already there. You're oh already God. at Handy Youngman. This is it, you guys. You walk out with your ukuleles and you don't play them. <laughs> okay, you guys, I mean, ukuleles, our new it, album drops next year. You hold them up to your, uh, you know, hold them up in position. You start one chord and then go, before we do this, let me tell you about the Polish fellow who walked into a bar. <laughs> Perfect. And you finish and go, there was this fat Hawaiian guy who was talking to a monkey. <laughs> and you go on like that. Oh, I can't wait. Oh, God. And I got so your good. opening line. The curtain opens. You're there with your two ukuleles, and you say, you already hate us. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, Pen is officially our manager, our spiritual guide. <laughs> this, is, ghost this is not even a podcast. It's just like uh, affirmations and therapy. I have like goals. <laughs> I feel good about myself. Yeah. This is us just building up our, our, our set for 2021. Yeah. You're all set. You can go. Uh, you, you, you take come out with two ukuleles, but you have in your back pocket bassoon and steel guitar duet. Now, that's your sets. Those are the sets behind you. Who has the best? Uh, who has the best ears of the two of you? Chelsea. Like physically, mine are very small. Yeah, like an elf. <laughs> <laughs> both, both physically and uh, musically, her ears are better. I'm going to tell you a story really fast. My mother is a nut. And I found out as an adult that she scotch taped our ears to our heads as babies because she was so worried about us having to stick out ears. And so to this day, like my ears, they like they're almost attached and they kind of come to a point like an elf. <laughs> it's one of my best features. Are you saying that worked? Yeah. Cause you know, when you're a baby, you're so like malleable and you don't, you don't have bones or cartilage. It's just, oh, that's why they can put babies in bottles and they grow to that shape. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're like cats. They fit. If it fits, I sit. Those are babies. I don't believe you. No. Ken, <laughs> I will call Liz and confirm yeah. that oh, no, she no, no. did I it. I believe she did it. I don't believe it worked. I believe you are pushing some sort of Lamarckian evolutionary bullshit that I don't buy. Do you have children? No. Are you, maybe that'll be passed down a generation. If you're going to go Lamarckian, go all the way. <laughs> I believe Darwin won that race. Darwin is correct. Lamarck was not. Okay. So you're saying the scotch tape did not work. But you just have perfect ears is what he's saying. I'm okay. saying you might have had perfect ears anyway. Right. Thanks. Now see, now what would your therapist say about that? As soon as your ears were complimented, you covered them with your hair. It's my deep shame. My deep, deep shame. I could tell you. She's, she's changed the subject. Change the subject. Is that the same thing? As soon as someone says you have a nice body, you put your clothes on. They say you have nice ears. You cover them with hair. It's somehow, it's like ingrained in every woman's DNA. Like as soon as you say something, you go, no. you're no! saying DNA. There you go with Lamarckian. Oh, God. <laughs> what is wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> 
Hey, you know, I'm backstage here at uh, Fool Us, and I wanted to take a little break in the uh, in the funny conversation and tell you about something. You know, uh, it's really hard to stay connected with people who live far away. You know, we are in uh, we're in a world where people spread out all over. There's people you love everywhere, and to keep your uh, you know grandparents, parents, uh, uh, children in the loop uh, in your life while you're far away is hard. Well, anyway, I got to tell you, there's this touchscreen photo frame from Skylight Frame that you can email photos to instantly. So you give someone this frame that sits on their desk or on their wall or on their dresser, and they get new pictures all the time you get to send from them. I said new pictures. And you save your share your favorite moments with the people that matter most. Uh, you know, you get that, you get that right after maybe you just had a grandchild for the grandparents. It's a great gift for someone whose birthday is coming up, someone who just had a baby, or even get it for yourself. It takes less than 60 seconds to set up. I did it, you know. I got it for my wife. I set it up for her. She gave it out to everybody. She's got pictures there all the time. It looks like a real photo frame. Adds a beautiful touch to your home. The Skylight Frame is a gorgeous 10-inch touchscreen. You can swipe through photos with your finger, even tap to thank the person who sent a photo. 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If you don't love your Skylight, they'll offer you a full refund. You can tap the heart button to let the sender know you love the photo. It's the frame is interactive, fun to use, really, really easy to set up. My wife has pictures all the time. It's really great. Go, uh, Go check it out. You just have to go to um, Skylight Frame. When you go to skylightframe.com, skylightframe.com, and enter the code PEN. That's right. You get $10 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame. Just go to skylightframe.com, enter the code PEN. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E.com, enter the code P-E-N-N. That's PEN. Check it out. You will love it. What a great gift. It's an easy no-brainer gift. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I gotta tell you, talking to someone who is a professional, whose job it is to listen to you and help you get focused and get your, uh, and get your life just a little bit better is a really good thing. Better help will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. I gotta tell you, I tried this. It was really helpful. You start communicating under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. Go check it out. Go to the BetterHelp uh, website. Check out how much they've helped people. It's really, really good. Visit betterhelp.com slash and that's better help H-E-L-P, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. I gotta tell you, they, uh, uh, they're, they're committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's all, it can be more, if it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. You can check your, your account anytime. And they get back to you really quickly. You can do it, you know, you can do it texting or emails and certainly face-to-face with video or just audio. It's really good. Check it out. BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So many people are using BetterHelp that they've been recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. And PSS listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp. 
dot com slash n b e t t e r h e l p dot com slash p e n n. Check it out; it's really a good thing. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell wherever and whatever you're selling. Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at Shopify.com/try. Go to Shopify.com/try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com/try. But you say you have good pitch. Yeah, I think I have pretty good, like relative pitch. Okay, well,、uh, steel guitars for you. I mean,、okay. pedal steels for you. I will put、uh, Sarah on the bassoon. <laughs> It's been a dream since five minutes ago. <laughs> oh man, I can't wait. I was,、uh, I was hopeful that I would get fairly good on the、uh, upright bass, and that I would move to bassoon. And that first thing never happened, so I didn't move to bassoon. <laughs> <laughs> There's still time. Yeah, you could do it. You are fairly good. You just have to. You just have to make your move now. To bassoon, yeah. Yeah. I don't know as I should do that living with my family during a lockdown. <laughs> Seems like that's dangerous. The same mother that taped my ears to my head as a child. My niece lives with us, and she's five. She gave her an accordion, an accordion that functions for Christmas. <laughs> she's cruel. She hates、five? you. Who she、yeah. hates? I mean, all of us, really. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> so you live with your mother and your niece? Are you in Guyana? No, my mom is in Tennessee. <laughs> yeah, but my sister and my niece live with us. No mother, just sister and niece. Yeah,、oh, no mother. Mother's in Tennessee. Your sister and your niece. Yeah, and she sent her an accordion. Yes. Oh my goodness! And did she send like the rest of you soldering irons to? Fight back? <laughs> no. <laughs> I didn't mean to use on the accordion, of course. <laughs> of course. Colonel Parker, Elvis's manager, who took about ninety percent of Elvis's money and left him ten percent.、Uh, Colonel Parker, who the reason that Elvis didn't tour outside the U.S. is that、uh, Colonel Parker could not have gotten back in with all his warrants. Colonel Parker, who had a carnival background. Colonel Parker. Who was a hustler? When Elvis did his comeback special in、uh, Studio 8H of Rock 30 Rock, where Saturday Night Live is done now, when I was on Saturday Night Live, all I was excited about was not that I was on Saturday Night Live. I was excited I was in the Elvis comeback studio. <laughs> That's the one where Elvis came out in all leather and really did. It was in the 70s, really became Elvis again.、Um, Colonel Parker had printed up 200 souvenir programs without anybody talking about it, and then stood in the lobby as the people were coming in to be in the free audience for the comeback special of Elvis, and sold the programs 
for 20 bucks a piece and just pocketed it. <laughs> <laughs> the comeback special, he was paid a tremendous amount for. <laughs> Not Elvis, Colonel Parker. But he still needed that pocket change. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. But you talk about that. You love having cash in your pocket. It's different. Oh, I, I when I was playing on Broadway, I would go down to CBGB and play with bands on stage. You know, after playing a thousand-seat theater filled up on Broadway, I would jump on a limo to go to CBGB, which isn't done that often. Uh, I would get out, run on stage with my Rickenbacker, and at the end of the night, they would pay me $300, and I would go crazy going, this is the most money I've made in years. <laughs> <laughs> it feels so good. Oh, it's, I would play punk clubs, played the 930 Club in, um, in uh, D.C., where I could not stand up. <laughs> the ceiling was too low. The stage was 6'4". <laughs> I'm 6'6", six, six, had a bend over my bass, and I would play with any band, and they'd pay me cash at the end of the night. And I never even negotiated it. They would just count out cash, and I'd go, holy shit, in like 20s <laughs> and stuff. You know somewhere one of those band members were like, I can't believe Penn's taking this money. I, I believe all of them were saying that. I thought he'd just turn it down. I thought he would just yeah. say, no, 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 no. I'm playing on Broadway. Yeah, Mentally, exactly. I'd spend my extra 15 bucks for my cut from Penn giving it back, but now I, <laughs> I can't get it. I will tell you that until this second, the idea of giving it back never crossed my mind. <laughs> he also printed out souvenir programs for every band. Yeah. He, he wrote them out in, in the limo ride over. He was just writing out a souvenir program. <laughs> souvenir programs are half Japanese right here. <laughs> 10 bucks. 20 bucks. We paid you out for the first bucket show you came to. What was it? You, when you came over and did stuff at the bucket show with Paul and I, we yeah. split up the bucket. We gave you that, and I said, I know how much you love being paid out in cash for gigs. And you took it, and you're like, don't ever do this ever again, but I'm taking this money now. And you took the money. <laughs> Tell her, we were playing Bally's, and we were playing, you know, um, the, the big showroom, you know, where Sinatra played, where he didn't know what a pedal steel was. You know, 1,200 people sold out. And Teller said one day, when's the last time we were paid? I mean, the money goes to business managers and agents. And then whenever we want to buy something, we get the money back. We never get paid. So Teller called up the manager of Bally's and said, tonight, we would like to be paid in cash. <laughs> and they said, well, we don't, we don't ever pay in cash. And Teller said, tonight, you're going to. We want to be paid in cash for what we did tonight. And they said, uh, okay. <laughs> and at the end of the show, four security guards came in with a briefcase. That's my dream. And they went, <laughs> and they opened it up, and there was money. <laughs> money. <laughs> and Teller said, this is what we made tonight? And they said, we haven't got final settlement. We're sorry, but it's within 5%. Teller said, we made this tonight? And they said, yeah. And Teller said, get the whole crew in here. <laughs> and the whole crew was brought in. And Teller went, guys, just so you know, when we're working here, we're getting paid money. <laughs> and then he reached in and he pulled out, without counting, just pulled out a few bills for everybody. 
and gave them to everybody and said, no one knows about this money. This is just money. Do what you want with it. (laughs) And they said, thanks. And then Teller reached in and took a couple of stacks and says, I have no idea how much that is, Penn. Go spend it. They took a couple of stacks, put it in his pocket, and then sat there and went, okay, go turn this into a check and give it to other people like you always do. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a great, great day. Yeah. And we were telling that story and someone said, how much did you give to the crew? How much did you do? We said, we don't know. <laughs> and they said, were well, you reaching in piles of hundreds or twenties until I said, I-, I don't know. That's what I was just going to say. You don't know what that was. It could have been, could have been a couple $500 bills in there. <laughs> Unlikely, but yeah, there were no quarters. <laughs> I believe there were no singles, but see, Teller and I were both street performers. Yeah, I was going to so, say, on the, on the side hustle front, you don't really have too much side, because you guys were street performers and Renaissance Fair people forever, right? You never, were you, were you doing a lot of side hustle gigs? Uh, well, you see, when I met Teller, uh, Teller was a tenured high school Latin teacher. Right. And I was straight out of high school. Out of. Not graduated. <laughs> and Teller was tenured. That was his life. He was going to be a Latin teacher. And he, was in, he became a Latin teacher because of Vietnam. Because his lottery number was three. Oh, yeah. And I don't know if any of you have met Teller. I don't think he would have done well in Nam. <laughs> so Teller got a job as a high school Latin teacher to have a deferment. Do you know how hard it was to get a job as a high school Latin teacher during the Vietnam War? Yeah. That's how tenacious Teller is. His Indian name is Terrier with a Slipper. <laughs> <laughs> so I met Teller. I was still in high school when I met him. And he was teaching and tenured. And um, Teller would then do a magic show at the library once every month or two. That was what he did for magic. And then the rest of the time he was a teacher. And then weird trips into New York that he'll probably someday be arrested for. And um, <laughs> he was teaching high school Latin in Trenton, New Jersey. And uh, I, got a, I, I was homeless. I was living on the streets. So I was street performing and doing any hustle I could, you know. I would, I would juggle, you know, for a milkshake. And... Um, I got a job at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival, and I called up Teller and said, well, I had to do a deal. I had to give back part of my salary to have them hire Teller. Um, And uh, I called up Teller and said, do you want a job as a magician? And um, he said, yes. And he said, when is is it? And I said, it starts weekends in August. And he said, perfect. I said, it's in Minnesota. He said, great. And I said, he said, I said, it goes to October. And he said, well, I have to be teaching school then. And I said, okay, I thought you're a magician, not a teacher. Goodbye. <laughs> and my phone rang a half hour later. And he said, I, I, uh, I, I'll, I'll take that gig. And then he sent a letter, which we still have. 
I have a copy of it. It's wonderful. To his teacher saying, to his uh, principal saying he was taking a year leave of absence to do magic and he would be back. <laughs> and uh, every year he would write and say, well, I think I'm going to take another year. But in principle, he was still perhaps a high school teacher <laughs> on sabbatical while we were on Broadway. I don't know. Well, uh, the interesting thing is while he's teaching and doing magic, there's a, like, which is actually his side hustle. Right, exactly. You know? Um, and then uh, I, being very, very romantic, tremendously romantic about show business, said to tell her, if we're going to team up, we have to make a promise right now that no one will take any jobs outside of show business no matter what. The second we take a job outside of show business, the group splits up. Wow. Now, what no, the other two members of the group didn't notice was there was only one person in the group who had no chance of getting a job outside of show business. <laughs> <laughs> the other two had marketable skills. <laughs> it's like it's if you're like a team of like a, like a freak show and like you're the tattooed guy head to toe with like lime green skin and you're like, the moment any of us don't do a freak act. This, this breaks up. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It was just. It was. It was. It was just great. It was just you know. And my whole speech was the Beatles didn't like do inventory while they were working in Hamburg. <laughs> they were not serving beer. They were playing, and they weren't being paid much, but they worked in show business. So consequently. We had to take every gig offered no matter what. Well, this is, and this kind of is like what we talk about, which is a lot of these side hustles end up being in the biz. They're just side hustle gigs, right? Yeah. So you, you're, you think what you want is a, is a, you know, a long-term, long-running show or a, a TV, you know, episodic, or you think you want these things, but in the meantime, even in between those, you still have to find other jobs. Yeah, like you want to sell your music catalog to Columbia for $700 million, like Bob Dylan. <laughs> mm. It's yeah. like a small side hustle like that. Yeah, just something like that. Like, just have some jingle in your pocket. Yeah, yeah just, so, <laughs> just so you know, you can go to that diner you like. You know, I want that you know, in cash. <laughs> <laughs> and then he brought all of his bandmates into the room and said, this is what we made, and just started handing and it out. And you're getting none of it. <laughs> <laughs> and he just lit it on fire in front of them. <laughs> how long? Because you're, you're friends with not only you're friends more friends with Dylan's kid than you are Dylan. Yeah. So how how long do you wait to make a phone call when you read that your dad just made three hundred million? <laughs> how how long before you check in to be like, are we doing Christmas somewhere? Or are we? <laughs> How's your health, Dad? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like. Do you have a living will? What's going on over there? So you're 79, huh, Dad? Woo. <laughs> <sighs> the same mother that taped my ears told me that Bob Dylan was my dad at one point. And then she was like, ha I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. But it was like years. And I was like, what? Wait, wait. For years, you believe Bob Dylan was your dad? Yeah. You don't know that? No. Like, <laughs> so my mom has jokes. I mean, they're cruel. But like, so she, for a while, because like we didn't have a relationship with my dad. Ooh, the pod took a turn. Um, my mom was like, oh, I'll tell you who your dad is. She was like, imagine this. 
Atlanta. And like, she's like telling the story about seeing Bob Dylan. And she was like, yeah, maybe that's your dad. And I was like, brown hair, brown hair. Yes, yes, it could be. (laughs) And I was like, look at his ears. They're like an elf. We're the same. (laughs) Uh, And then like years later, I said something to her like, yeah, remember when you said that about Bob Dylan being my dad? And she was like, oh, Chelsea, you'll believe anything. And I was like, (laughs) you're my mother. You're my mother. (laughs) Best Christmas ever. You're your mother lying to a child. Yes. I believe fire was hot and I should eat a ju- drink a juice box. Yeah. My whole adult life is like unlearning the things that I thought were facts. <laughs> Maybe I should write Bob Dylan a letter. Hey, Pops. Yeah. Remember that? What are the, Now's the time. What are the ages? I imagine there's a filing cabinet just for those. <laughs> Especially after the 300 million. Yeah, yeah oh, exactly. <laughs> that filing cabinet got fat. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of those letters are from Maury Povich. Ready to just do it. <laughs> so we got a um, we had a phone call that they wanted us to do a show at a juvenile detention facility for first degree crimes. It was for um, people under fifteen who were serving time for murder, rape, or armed robbery. All right. Yikes! And uh, wait, this is this is the Minneapolis era. This era. Uh, this was uh, shortly after that. Take take any gig era. We got a call, and it was in New Jersey. That's where they ship them. We understood that it was going to be a detention facility for children. We did not understand that it was a uh, high security children. Uh, that everybody in there pretty much had killed somebody, Ooh. and it was fifteen year olds with gang tats. And it was, you know, concertina wire around everything and guards. And uh, we went into this um, horrible, horrible room filled with um, murderers who happened to be young. And uh, we had our props, which included knives and fire. I was going to do knife juggling and fire eating. (laughs) And there were guards. I mean, the ratio of guards to children was a guard for every dozen. Oh, geez. I mean, there were a lot of guards. <laughs> These were dangerous, dangerous people. And they were sitting on the floor in front of us, and we were scheduled to do um, a half-hour show. Who's the connector? Who? What, someone saw you at a Renaissance fair? It was like, <laughs> I also booked shows for juveniles? Yes. They had one show a year. Uh-huh. They had the budget for one show a year. And we went in and did our show, and we didn't think it went well. <laughs> and we finished, and they walked us out, and the, um, the guard said to us, that was amazing. That was amazing. You're the only ones who've ever finished your show. <laughs> oh, wow. And you're the only ones that no one walked on stage while you were working. And do you have all your props? And we said, yes. And they said, never happened before. (laughs) And that was the year before we went off Broadway. And while we were off Broadway, they were still calling us every year and saying, please do this gig. (laughs) Did you ever do it again? We never did. If we were truly Henny Youngman, we would have done that. 
<laughs> well, we're doing eight shows a week, but if you book us on a Monday, coming on Monday, we can get out to pay us in cash. I did. Uh, I did a juggling show in San Quentin. You did? Yeah, yeah, in San Quentin with my partners a long time ago. We were there. Are like rules when you play a prison now, right? Like, well, this was still mm, 82, 81, 82. Okay. <laughs> so you can still do <laughs> knives and that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, we were. Still, we had knives. We were going to do a pass around and. Uh, <laughs> And there was a uh, a moment in the show where we looked out, and everyone in the audience, they're all black, and they're all wearing orange jumpsuits. <laughs> and so we're going to do a pass around, and my partner pointed out and said, you, the black guy in the orange. <laughs> <laughs> Which got a huge <laughs> laugh from the audience, and we actually used, like, the warden for the pass around, because that's, <laughs> that's the only way it's really funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Did yes. it go over well? Very well. But we did not go back and do it again next year either. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, the, the, that booker must be a real hustler, right? Yeah. Got to get people to play a prison. My, uh, my dad was a jail guard. And some of my first juggling shows were at the local, uh, the local jail. Oh, right. Yeah. Because what those uh, people want to see is a 12-year-old boy juggling on a unicycle. And also, also for your father as a jail guard to be vulnerable, like, this is my son. (laughs) Like, my father's defended some of the worst criminals in the world, but he never, like, brought us into, like, wave, you know? (laughs) Your dad was probably mortified. One of his friends found out. Hey, hey. Oh, (laughs) Sam's kid. Sam's kid juggles, right? (laughs) You want to hear, you want to see my dad's face fall, just have someone call out his name in public when he's eating with his children. Like, he, anytime, so it's like, Dave Donnelly? He's like, oh no. Who did I, who did I get out of prison? Who is this guy? So, um, both Godot and I have worked at prisons. How about you guys? Any side hustles at prisons? <laughs> Never had a side hustle at prison, but my mother did just tell a funny story about the, the dancing school where they, where they went to Elk's Lodge. And they're, you know, a bunch of old old men, and they used to always hire my grandmother's dancing school, and she would bring them to do, to just do their dance recitals. And it wasn't until my mom got older that she was like, so they were just bringing young women to come in and do their dance recitals in front of all of these older men. This doesn't, this doesn't sound like we were... Doing we this is not a good thing. I don't think. You're, this is a, your mother, by the way, whose whose mother lied, helped her lie about her age so she could dance the Copacabana uh, every, every night at right. sixteen. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. The, the hustle started young in my family. Yeah. Well, there's a a friend of mine who was a, a topless dancer in Jubilee. You know, kind of your your mom's topless show. You know, the mm-hmm. they're in Bob Mackie outfits and stuff, so it's different kind of topless. Her mother uh, wanted her to be a showgirl, and she was on stage, topless, at 17, lying about her age, and the first time she had her shirt off in front of someone of the opposite sex was on stage in, uh, in Tahoe. <laughs> Absolutely no sexual experience. And dancing topless in a show. Well, that would be an interesting person to talk to because of what you're like. Is it just fine? Are you just normal? Did you just grow up that way, or was it? Because even to this day, I'm still like, oh, I don't know if I could do that. 
<laughs> yeah. The whole, they were like, you know, five sisters in the family. And they all worked as showgirls at one time or another because the mother, that's all she wanted. I love it. I'm yeah. Like, yeah, get them out. <laughs> I feel like, too, Jubilee, I mean, it's not even like sexual because it's just no. like two boobs. And they're not even allowed, they're not allowed to jiggle. And no, yeah. <laughs> they're just kind of like stationary, like. I read a review one time about Jubilee, like it was around the time it was closing and it was talking about how it was just like this like kind of th- like thing from the past. And they said that they described the breast as like two fried eggs in the loaming because it's kind of like misty <laughs> yeah. and you just see like nipples. Yeah, yeah it was, uh, you know, and, and, and it was a show that, you know, uh, very prudish people went to. It was nothing, yeah. you know, and they, they had to do that special stand. The bevel? Which they, uh, which they taught me where they bend their knee up. Yeah. So in the G string, they're, you know, they're, uh, it looks like they could be naked and you still wouldn't see anything. You know, they do that kind of thing <laughs> and they're able to walk downstairs. It's like a hyper bevel. Yeah. There's the bevel, which is what most dancers right. do, which is basically what you're talking about. But this is like a hyper bevel where it's like up and in even more so that you really can't tell if there's anything. If there's a little string or there's not. And she taught me that. So whenever Penn and Teller do an appearance and they put showgirls behind us, I stand just like them. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm not sure anyone but me can tell. I was just going to say, I don't know how much just like them it is, but for you, it's just like them. Feels like Uh-oh. just like them. It's doing it. Listeners, we're going to get a visual, so stand by. Uh, no, you can't see it, though, because it's... Hands on your hips. <laughs> we could see just the right part. Yeah. But I feel like once you start beveling, you can't stop. So then there's never like a casual picture for the rest of your life. Like I've thrown up like a jazz hand in every family portrait for years. Sarah's mom bevels in every photo. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Because it makes you look slim too because you're like side. Yeah, that's <laughs> you it. You got a you, twist. And at first you're like, this is painful. And then you believe in it. Yeah. And then you believe in the bevel. But, painful, uh, they're but all- you believe in it, Bob Dylan. Yeah, we were actually uh, we were actually thrown out of uh, of Jubilee. What? Teller and I were not allowed in the theater, even though we were headlining at the next uh, place, and that was because. Uh, t- tell me uh, what you think of this. I was. Um, tell me if you think this is fair. <laughs> okay. Ready. I'm ready. Ready. I was dating one of the topless dancers, yeah. and I was in the very next theater. So I would sometimes go over, and there were also variety acts in Jubilee. Yeah, I've done it. I've worked the show. There was a crossbow act, you know, and a comic, and we would go backstage. So we would be backstage, and the curtain would be closed, and they'd be, you know, um, 20 or 40, depending on how you count them, topless women backstage. (laughs) And uh, I remember that the, the woman I was dating was disgusted at some of the women because they'd be backstage before the curtain opened, flicking their nipples to get their nipples hard and erect so they would look good. And uh, the woman that I knew said, if you're a professional, you can just do that with your mind. You can just go. (laughs) (laughs) And she'd be backstage, she would just go. (laughs) She said, you shouldn't have to touch them. You should just be able to do that. It's part of the job. (laughs) So we were backstage. And all the women walked by us. And one of the women went over to the security guard and said, 
we don't like having them backstage when we're working. Mm -hmm. And the security guard came over and said, how would you like to be on stage naked and walk by and have strangers back there? And then he walked away. And Teller began taking off his shirt and his pants. <laughs> so did I. So when the women did their costume change and all filed back by us, we were both standing there naked. <laughs> Butt-ass naked in our bevels, saying, does this make you more comfortable? <laughs> At which point security came over, threw towels around us, picked up our clothes, and told us we were never allowed in that property again. At which point Teller responded, we're the headliners next door. <laughs> And they said, well, you can come on the property to go to your show, but you can't come into this theater. We said, okay, and went in the hallway where all the, uh, you know, food is and put on our clothes. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only show I've ever worked where they came to your dressing room to get you and escorted you to spots where you would stand and wait until they escorted you to the next spot so that you... There were like three moves that they had to make before you would be allowed on stage. Why is that? Well, we violated that. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. They would come up and they would get us. They would take us to a spot and they say, Stand "You violated here. that. You started that. You began that process." <laughs> yeah. oh, the reason I suffered for it. <laughs> one of the reasons they had to do that was because there were turntables and yeah, there was a lot of moving equipment, and you didn't want to have someone hurt. Also, probably because two. Pieces of carny trash stripped off all their clothes <laughs> and showed their yeah. penises to um, showgirls. Yeah. They didn't mention you by name. <laughs> oh, I, I think actually, I'm not sure this is true, but I think Teller might have had a headdress on or something he thought looked like a headdress. <laughs> <laughs> but what do you think? If you were working a uh, topless show and you walked off stage, then walked back on and Penn and Teller were standing there naked, do you complain? Okay, I think this is a tough question because it depends on like back then versus now versus then do we talk about back then? I mean, for me, I'd laugh, but that's me. That's very kind of you. It doesn't trigger anything for me. <laughs> I would say I would be offended except that you're in a bevel so then it's fine because obviously <laughs> you're, you're professional. So <laughs> <laughs> yes. We thought uh, you know, the Marx brothers were very famous for stripping naked all the time. Really? And uh, I, uh, I, when I read Harpo's autobiography uh, about all the naked stuff, I just thought there was nothing funnier. Like Alexander Wolcott would give a dinner party outside in Connecticut. And Harpo, who was his friend, who he didn't know was in town, um, would be... Uh, would sneak into town, so he didn't, no one thought he was coming to the party. And then while they were all out um, having their hors d'oeuvres and chatting, they would see a man running naked from bush to bush that was Harpo. <laughs> and Harpo would be butt-ass naked, trying to sneak as close as he could to the party without being seen. <laughs> now, when Salvador Dali uh, met Harpo, uh, Salvador Dali said, I'd like to do your portrait. Harpo said yes, invited him to his house in Beverly Hills. And when Salvador Dali arrived, um, uh, Harpo's secretary 
said to Salvador Dali, he's in the backyard waiting for you. Go on back. <laughs> and Harpo was, yes, reclining <laughs> with his legs spread on a, uh, on a chaise saying, I'm ready for my portrait. Hate me like one of your French girls. Yes. Salvador. <laughs> and Salvador Dali created a harp with barbed wire and said that was his portrait of Harpo Nick. <laughs> <laughs> when you are talking about two crazy people, the ante can go up very quickly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the other story of the Marx Brothers was when they had a meeting with a producer or a studio head, every minute that the person was late for the meeting, one of them would take off their clothes. And after five minutes, they started throwing furniture out the window. <laughs> oh, man. So uh, Irvin Thalberg would come in and have five naked Marx Brothers and his chair going out the window. <laughs> <laughs> they also were showing up at a friend's party at a hotel. And the friend um, had rented out the top floor of a ballroom for the party. And the Marx Brothers got on the elevator and they thought it'd be really funny if the elevator door opened and they ran in and they were all naked. So they took off their clothes and they hit them in the elevator and they stood there ready to run out. The elevator door opened, they ran out, they were on the wrong floor. It was a wedding party. Oh. And the wedding party got to experience the Marx Brothers, who at the time were superstars. Right. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is the equivalent of like Ben Stiller or, you know, uh, I guess. <laughs> now, if they also pulled off a Henny Youngman here, I'll be very impressed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they ran out the elevator, and the elevator door closed behind them and left, and they shook hands and signed autographs. <laughs> so technically they did yeah they did so, yeah. so I would read about how the, um, the Marx Brothers would do that and I just thought it was the funniest thing in the world so I got naked at a Disney meeting uh, to serve donuts I came out of the closet butt ass naked with crullers on a platter <laughs> uh, because I knew they were going to fire us and I wanted to give them reason <laughs> so we had a producer who was a woman and i said to her i have just gone to the topless donut shop in florida i think since this disney meeting is not going to go well you should serve us donuts topless and she said you know men always think it's funny for a woman to like be topless or do something but i'm not when i worked in Saturday night live everybody thought that was funny but no one ever suggested a man do it I didn't say another word. We got into the meeting. I went into the closet for a moment. I came out. There were like eight people in the meeting. I said, anybody want a crawler? And I walked around the table, served it to everybody, and they fired us. And I said, see, just as funny when a guy does it. The joy for me lies in the, in the moments inside the closet. Because I know how excited you were taking your clothes <laughs> yes. off. So the joy for me is you, in a, a, as big as you are in this closet, slinking out of your clothes and just giggling to yourself and maybe getting stuck for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I, love, I love comedic nudity. It's certainly out of fashion in today's time. I think of almost any, any circumstances. But I, 
I, uh, I my comedy group, we used to do this thing called hut hunting. And hut hunting is when you drop your pants down to your ankles and march in like a train line covering your balls and you just go hut, 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 hut. <laughs> and we would just do it at like parties or we like to like every comedy festival we wanted to be sure we hut hutted in every state we went to. Sure. And then sure. one time we were at this bar in San Diego and it was like a really trendy hipster bar. And all of a sudden, we were into our cups a little bit, and then Bon Jovi came on, and we were started singing at the top of our lungs because we were from Jersey. And your appreciation for Bon Jovi increases the further away you are from New Jersey. Sure, that's science. <laughs> the further away you are from Bon Jovi, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so we're singing it, and the and the and the bouncer goes like, "All right, enough, guys, enough." And we're like, "What? This is our song." And he goes, "The last five songs were your song," <laughs> and um, and we decided we were mad at him. Yeah, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, my buddy Sammy goes, "We should hut hut this place." <laughs> and so you're right, Sarah's right. The giggling that we had as we all piled into the men's bathroom and we're taking taking our clothes <laughs> off so we can hut 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 this hipster bar in San Diego, and then we hut hutted through. The place was very aghast, which was hysterical to us. <laughs> and then it was when they first started instituting, we had to smoke outside, so we got outside. And I was carrying my clothes in my in my arms, and I'd shoe fell in front of a guy who was smoking. And I just stopped without thinking. I just bent over right in front of him to pick up my shoe, and I just heard him go like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, we were once on a radio show in Miami. We had on a woman from Hooters, and we were talking about the sexual element of the name. And she said, well, it's just about an owl, and we said, no, it isn't. And it got into her saying that anybody who would work topless was a slut, and she was doing this horrible slut-shaming stuff. Like, she worked at Hooters. She would never work at a <laughs> you know dance bar. And we were very angry at her, and she said, would you take your clothes off for a million dollars? And I stood up on the uh, recording console of the radio show. The radio show had a live audience of about 50 people. And I took off all my clothes, and that's when I learned if you strip in public, don't throw your clothes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they have to be close by so you can gather them. And then uh, I found out that I'd thrown my underwear right near my friend's elderly mother. <laughs> who had come to see her, her, Richie's, her Richie's friend on the radio. Oh. And so I had to go and pick up my boxer shorts in front of her and say, hi, hi Mrs. Nathanson, N nice to meet you. That was just because she said, we're Richie's parents. <laughs> and then two days later, we were doing a bit in our show where Teller and I stripped naked behind a curtain to show we had nothing up our sleeves. And Teller always brought a young man and an older woman on stage to examine us naked. And he picked... Rich's mother. <laughs> so my friend, Rich Nathanson, uh, called me up and said, what is it with you showing your cock to my mother? I mean, this is the <laughs> second time in 48 hours. I mean, once, it's a weird, funny bit. Well, how does this happen twice? And I said, well, you know, it, we didn't plan it. He said, how do you not plan it? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, maybe it was her who was planning it. <laughs> So, she uh, liked little Richie's friend. Little Richie's friend, little Richie. I believe that if you've not been naked on stage, you're not really in show business. <laughs> mm, 
I guess I'm not really mm. in show business. Never? You never did naked stuff? I've never done naked stuff. I've been close to naked. I mean, I've done naked stuff. <laughs> no. No, I don't think I've done... No, I mean, I've been close to naked, but never naked. And naked, I did air quotes around it because like even in shows when you're like very scantily clad, you still have like a very powerful um, pair of fishnets on. And Not like me. String. Oh, <laughs> that's true. I also think fishnets and nothing else might be less than perfectly comfortable for me. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of a chafe. There's a little chafe. I, I, it's always been a dream, though, to, uh, to wear a merkin, and I kind of was doing that in the last, in the last show that I did before pre-pandemic. Um, but I, but I, but it was on the sides, and I really would love to just wear a front one just because i love the i love merkin i just love saying it it's a good word yeah. it's a good idea kind of like cantaloupe ready editing notice for ready rich you you pop back on here are we supposed to break up this episode yeah we're so yeah. good okay that was penn sunday school you happy now <laughs> cha 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 that was easy you become naked like harpo <laughs> then we end the episode with a More Merkin Talk next week. You know, we love you. We have a thank there, Matt. All right. I want to thank the following patrons for supporting us on Patreon. I'm talking about Jacob McCulley, Kelsey Johnson, Nicole Martin, Matthew Roosh, Crazy Cat Lady Scoop, Brian and Michelle Laddle, Music Man, Larry XGD Falcon Latouf, Jamie Thrasher, Rachel Hawkins, Mark Smith, Jake Schneider, Pete Hoke, Mark Hauser, Doug Hirschberger, Jeremy Davidson, Robin Garnett, Obi Dimitrian Jr., Jeremy R22, Winter Weirkowski, Allison Sage, Kristen Kladick, Michael Cohen, Dr. Scoop Little, Joseph Mastrangelo, Jeremiah Jenkins, Nate Soloway, Kelly Reeves, and Michael Kaplan. Thanks, guys. <laughs>